There are many ways to travel around the world, but what is so specifically glorious about the road trip? The romance of hitting the wide open road has sparked the imaginations of writers and directors since the dawn of the highway. The journeys might take longer than in a plane or a train, but in your car, restrictions are lifted. You can take wrong turns that turn out to be the right ones, meet weird and wonderful folk, and get up close and personal with your surroundings. You might have a destination in mind, or maybe you just want to see where the ride takes you. Maybe an unexpected twist in the road or the story will lead you to places you've never otherwise explored. You're listening to The Road Ahead in association with Audi. In each episode, we'll be exploring different paths around the world across four different continents. This week, you have to be kind and relax and have aloha spirit. We're in Hawaii. The route, well, we'll be spending some time in Honolulu before hopping over to the island of Maui, where we'll find the Hana Highway. At 64 and a half miles long, the Hana Highway can easily be tackled in just half a day. It connects Kahului to the town of Hana and has almost 60 bridges and over 600 twists and turns. You want to take your time on this road, not just because of those hairpins, but also because of the jaw-dropping scenery. Oh man, that looks amazing! This verdant road traverses the north coast of Maui, meaning that among the thousands of species of flora you'll drive through, there are also fantastic ocean views and plenty of places to stop and take it all in. You'll find an abundance of waterfalls. Around every bend, water pours down the side of the hills, so make sure you pack your swimmers for a quick dip on this tropical drive. Gosh, that ocean is roaring. Wow. An amazing colour. Aloha. So here we are in Hawaii, that volcanic archipelago in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that conjures all sorts of images of palm trees, girls in hula skirts, men in Hawaiian shirts, and a generally laid-back approach to life. Here, the weather is tropical and you can almost see it happening before your very eyes. Sudden downpours make way for technicolor rainbows and hot, hot sun before the clouds roll back from around the mountains like a beatific geography lesson. Hawaii is, of course, the 50th American state, and though you can feel the impact of the mainland on this collection of islands, it feels very much of its location as a sort of halfway house between the US and Asia. In more recent times, as this place has become more westernized, Hawaiians have fought to reclaim their culture. There's been a surge in interest in relearning the language, keeping local traditions alive, and of course, retaining that aloha spirit that truly gives this place its identity. One of these traditions is hula, and one of Hawaii's top hula dancers is Kanoi Miller. Miller was crowned Miss Hawaii in the 1970s and has been dancing since she was a teenager. She still performs at the Halakalani Hotel in Waikiki every week, and that's where my travel companion Holly Fisher caught up with her to learn about the importance the of this dance. Speak about this wonderful mountain right here to my right, Diamond Head, or as we like to call it here in the islands, Kaimana Recently, I would say in the last five to ten years, there's been a resurgence of pride in Hawaiian culture, and that happened in, in the late 90s. With that resurgence of pride came the teaching of Hawaiian language again, because we had pretty much lost our Hawaiian language. Then with the teaching of Hawaiian language, there became an interest in teaching some hula in schools. The word hula means to dance, it's the verb to dance. 
So when you're hula dancing, you're dancing the Hawaiian art of storytelling. The ancient Hawaiians did not have any written language. Everything was passed down by word of mouth and by pantomime, by hula. Whether they spoke about their genealogy, their histories, their spiritual beliefs, anything. The hula mindset, for me, happens on the drive to work. Um, and in that drive to work, thankfully my husband's driving <laughs> and I get to daydream. But what I do is I like to look at the world around me, whether it's the scenes that I see as we drive to work, or whether I look up at the sky, or whether I watch the way the um, palm trees are swaying in the wind. Or These are things I kind of focus on because that's part of our dance is to describe things in nature that surround us. You know, hula is like telling stories of the extraordinary in the ordinary. <laughs> okay, so taking ordinary things that are like things you just look at and might not even think twice about, but then finding the extraordinary in it and, and developing that into your dance. As we've learned, storytelling is an important part of Hawaiian culture, and that's not just in music, but also on Hawaiian clothes. The Hawaiian shirt is, of course, one of the most iconic pieces of national dress. Its origins have been argued by many. Some cite the Beach Boys of Hawaii as making them famous. Some think they started in Japan. Others think it was Hollywood. But one thing that can't be argued is that these shirts provide snapshots of Hawaiian life, whether depicting surfing, fishing or drinking. One man who's been working with these shirts his whole life is local Dale Hope, who started working for his father's business, Hawaiian Style, and transformed it into Kahala, one of the leading makers of Hawaiian shirts on the island, and therefore the world. Hope has also written a book tracing the colourful history of these garments, which are also known as Aloha shirts. He talks us through some of his favourite designs and the histories they tell. Um, when I set out to do the book in 2000, I took a year off from my job, is what I told them. And I kind of um, figured, well, you know, professors go on sabbaticals and all these people do, and so why not? I've been working in, that, in my own company that I'd sold and I'd been working there for so long that I just thought, well, it's time to really do something. And I embarked on trying to tell the story of all the people that were involved in the garment industry from the very beginning. And I really, because I'd grown up in a factory, I thought that every aspect of the Aloha shirt was important. You know, the artists that created the art was important. The cutters that cut the fabric was important. The sewers were important. The gal that put the buttons on was important. The textile designers, whether they have been from Honolulu, Hawaii, California, or um, a lot of the designs were done in Japan. All of those stories to me were very important. And, you know, it got all the way down to, I took the time to tell the story of the coconut button. Where did the coconut button come from? Who made them? And my dad had had a coconut button card in his desk for years. And I had that card and it had an address on it and a name, John A. Oya. So I ended up going out there one day and 
looked at what used to be a factory there for woodworks and um, it was an empty lot with, with cars. So I went next door, asked the people there, hey, whatever happened to the people that made the coconut buttons? And he kind of looked at me and long story, but I ended up going the next block over and going into the very back of the little driveway there. And he, the, he said, well, you might find the guy. So I went back there and I found the guy and he was taking a nap on a leather car seat. And I said, hey, hi, you know, I'm trying to find the guys that made the coconut buttons. And they looked at each other and the guy said, that's me. So he was 78, his name was Ernest Oya and his dad was John A. Oya and he was the guy that made all these buttons back in the early, early days. And he told me all the stories about coconut buttons. It was priceless. It's quite amazing. I mean, these shirts, they're not just something to wear, but they're also, a pe they're, each one of them is a kind of a piece of history as well then. Yeah, I mean, I wish we, I wish we were all here to see this shirt. I found this shirt in Japan when we were actually there to present our Japanese version of the Aloha shirt book. Um, and I went into a vintage store there and I looked up and I saw this shirt. So we got a, a bamboo pole and we brought it down and I, I started looking at it. And it was just so amazing. It's on kabi crepe. Kabi means pebble, pebble sort, sort of surfaced texture. It's on the Japanese fabric, it was hand printed, and it's got the most gorgeous label I've ever seen, Waikiki shirts, and it's got a gal in a woolen bathing suit surfing a very long board on a wave off of Waikiki. It's a label I'd never seen. And then the motifs, we've got little huts, we've got coconut trees, we've got guys climbing the coconut trees, we've got surfers in the print wearing woolen bathing suits which was very popular back in the 20s. And we've got guys in little uh, outrigger canoes, again, in their woolen bathing suits. And we've got the only two t hotels that were in Waikiki, the Moana, which was built in 1901, and the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which was built in 1927. And the pier coming off the Moana, which broke down in a storm so many years ago. And that, they are all on the shirt. It, only surrounded by coconut trees. Today they're surrounded by buildings and condos and hotels and office buildings and towers. So it's just a classic shirt. I look at it by, if we do wear our Hawaiian shirts here, it's sort of a confirmation and expression of our love and passion for these wonderful islands and our lifestyle that we are so lucky to have and, and, and live with. So. To me, it's, a, it's an extension for my heartfelt love for, the, for these islands. Almost halfway point overlooking Kaloloa Point, having just had a swim at Haipuena Falls. Excuse the mispronunciation, Hawaiians out there. You must be used to it by now. Um, what no one is used to is the beauty of this thing. You might be able to hear the lapping of the waves, sometimes crashing in the background as the, the, the forest, thick as anything, comes straight down to the shoreline. And we look out across something that strangely looks like it could be a stormy day on Lake Como. What road trip isn't complete without a bit of music? And what instrument sums up Hawaii better than the ukulele? The instrument was introduced by Portuguese immigrants to these islands in the 19th century. Now the Kamaka family in Honolulu are probably the most well-known makers. 
Started by Samuel Kamaka, it's now run by his grandson Chris, who also happens to be a Grammy-nominated musician, a small fact he almost glossed over when we met him. Chris oversees production in their small factory in the back of their downtown shop. Here, they make ukuleles for customers all over the world, including some of the biggest stars of the uke, such as the local Jake Shimabukuro. My name is Chris Kamaka, and I am a third generation here at our family business, Kamaka Ukuleles. We've been building instruments this year, makes 102 years. We talked downstairs in the workshop, in the factory, about the manufacture of these things and the grading of them and the graining of them and all the different things that add up to it. But what about the cultural side of it, Chris? What do ukulele mean to Hawaiians? It's part of the Hawaiian culture that's so, like, like that is such a vibrant culture that so many people recognize all over the world. Ukulele is so much part of that. I mean, obviously, you're right at the forefront of making these things. What does it mean? Is there, is there one in everyone's house, a ukulele? For us, growing up, it was always around, you know, and my aunts and uncles were all musicians, and uh, my grandfather himself, uh, a musician, so, you know, the making of guitars was very fascinating to him, and, and, and the ukulele kind of was an offshoot of that for him. He started, you know, back in the 1916. In his garage was just making it for family and uh, eventually it, it blossomed to where he started his first factory over on King Street and then from there eventually here where we are today at 550 South Street. Unfortunately for me I never had the chance to meet my grandfather but my dad slowly kind of taught us what to look for and what to listen for and just watch and learn while he was building along with uh, the other employees, as I, I told you about earlier, um, you know, just growing up with them and eventually getting to feel that passion and be a part of it is was really important and exciting for me. The sort of Hawaiian songbook, the nature of driving around Honolulu and Maui for a few days has taught us that tuning in the radio station half of the music is Hawaiian it sounds to my ear like traditional music updated traditional music so that there's something very strong about that culture and it's centered around the ukulele and obviously the voice I wonder why you think it's so solid that that culture and, and actually quite unchanged it's always been a mainstay because it's it's a soothing instrument and it's, like I say, it's not hard to play and it, people can take it with them and it's just really soothing to play. Like for me, I play it every day. Uh, maybe sometimes I kind of take it for granted, but for me, just checking each instrument is really soothing for me. How do you check it? Do you, well, you play I some chords? You play, play something play some new, chords, something old? Uh, you maybe sing a little song or something, but just kind of get the feel, make sure the the action, the the height of the strings is correct, make sure... As far as structurally, everything looks good. As I said earlier, by the time it gets to me, it's pretty close, you know, unless somebody was to miss something, you know, the finish or mainly the playability, getting the action correct. And so, you know, when you're playing it, it doesn't hurt. You want to play it, so you want to keep playing it. You know, it's comfortable. When we walked into your shop at the front, Chris, we saw some of the different ones you've got in a glass box. There's the cigar box model, there's the standard model. I was looking at the, you know, the sort of family tree of some of your designs. One's called Otasan, there's the long neck, there's a tenor. 
Some of them are obviously the tenor is a, is a, is a, I guess, a musical grade. What about the other ones? What, are they different? Are they just different designs f- for aesthetic reasons, or they all make different sounds? Yeah, my grandfather actually started with the pineapple shape. Pineapple, then the figure eight is our standard shape. We have a soprano, alto, tenor, and then the baritone, which is our biggest. So, as you get bigger, you get a little more sound, a little deeper tone as it gets bigger. Then we have variations off those sizes, like the six-string tenor, eight-string tenor. Um, those are basically tuned the same way, just octaves on different strings or unison. It's kind of like a 12-string guitar. So that's the fancy one. That's that's when you need your George Harrison. <laughs> yeah, in fact, George, yeah, he did have the six-string. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. That's right. And let's go back to the testing because I'm intrigued by this and I like the idea of you maybe sitting here or 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 somewhere on your premises here in Honolulu testing these things out what are the favorite songs that you would do to use to to test out a ukulele that come in and was going out and being repaired or indeed a brand new one that you're particularly proud of yeah I I just drum some basic Hawaiian songs that I enjoy like maybe one from my hometown or even one that my dad used to sing all the time, the good little lullaby. Even a favorite song of uh, King Kalakaua's, which my dad used to enjoy singing too. <laughs> kind of strum along with it. is this and here we are sheltering from the rain can you hear the rain this moody weather that keeps passing through um, down to the sort of eastern tip of Maui has caught us out a few times and we've sheltered on the edge of the highway outside of Hana underneath the biggest oldest tree we could possibly find and you know what that tree is leaking <laughs> what an amazing spot yeah Wow, these islands have a bounty of beauty and a rich story to tell, as we've discovered on this trip. But how does this inspire the local creatives? We met the graphic designer Matthew Tapia and the painter Peggy Hopper. I grew up between Kailua, Pearl City and Honolulu, and there's just a lot of different looks 
you know, inspired by mom and pop shops, people who were just writing their own signs, really polished brass signs for these really expensive hotels. And you get this really eclectic mix of the hand homemade, the overtly tropical to kind of really, you know, get the tourist look. And then just solid design of the, of the era, you know, I was born in 1980, so it was coming out of the 1970s look, was still was really strong when the hotels that were around when I grew up were all built. You know, there's a lot of graphic designers that are going back to that era and reaching back. There's always amazing things to be found in the past, especially here in Hawaii. It has a rich history of visuals. There's something that's really interesting to me lately that's been happening is you're starting to get this resurgence of native Hawaiian design. And I know a, a really, a bunch of really great native Hawaiian designers that are really trying to bring the culture and the design together. And while I'm not exactly part of that conversation, I grew up here. So it's just as much a part of what I know of history as it is for them of their history. And I really love the way that like a place can come to define a look in that way as well, not just commercially, but also from a cultural standpoint. I think that it's amazing to see native Hawaiian designers and just this focus on the visuals that existed here, you know, pre-colonial and really trying to find a way to bring that into the modern era. That's, that's amazing, I mean, and it's beautiful. Like, you, you know, you're seeing more and more of the top of patterns, you're seeing more and more of the Hawaiian tattoo patterns, but taken out of context and repurposed for today. And it, it's really amazing and beautiful. I mean, if it's something that I end up uh, having the opportunity to be a part of through one project or another, that'd be great. But if not, it's still great to see happening. I introduce myself, <laughs> Peggy Hopper. Peggy, we, we're dealing in generalities in certain respects uh, on this road trip. And I wanted to know, first of all, what you can see out of your studio window, whether it makes any difference to what you paint. Oh, absolutely. But it's not just out my studio window. It's when I'm parked at a stop sign or, a, you know, and I look over and there next to me in a car is a, you know, beautiful Hawaiian person. and. Or you look up at the sky and you see, oh God, we've got the most beautiful skies and clouds. It's everywhere. It's not just in my studio, out my studio window. It's everywhere. I do love beauty. I mean, the world needs beauty for God's sakes right now more than anything else. <laughs> and music, and music, beauty and music. Listen, all you have to do is look up. When I take a walk in the afternoon and it's just as the sun is setting and I live high on the Pacific Heights over there, just look up. I mean, you're just transported. I mean, everything I do is kind of simplified. I like that too. So to try to catch the essence, you know George O'Keefe. She, she did a whole row of, of mountains in the desert, and yet everything is simplified. She didn't pick up every little rock and every little tree and every little shadow, and she saw it in a beautifully designed, simplified way. And that's what I like, is, is the simplification and to catch the essence. So, Hawaii. It's not the easiest place to get to, but all that luscious beauty and all that Hawaiian pride makes it worth the visit. You won't drive a more verdant road than the Hana Highway, splashed all the while by waterfalls and wonder. But Maui's a bewitching place. Take another road and you'll scale the Haleakala volcano and find yourself in a moonscape at 10,000 feet. We drove past surf and surfers and a sea of turtles that warmed our hearts. At Maui Airport, you'll find a vending machine that dispenses lei, those flower garlands oh so famous. 
Take one for you and one for your ride and head to the lushness of this extraordinary road. And there ends our first journey on the road ahead. Join us next time when we'll be driving from the highlands to the islands on a road trip through Scotland, a trip that you'll soon be able to make with the all-electric Audi e-tron. The Road Ahead is made in association with Audi. The series producer is Holly Fisher and executive producer is Tom Edwards. This episode was produced and edited by Holly Fisher and thanks to Kieran Banerjee. I'm Robert Bounds. Until next time, mahalo. Mahalo.